Welcome to Trending in Education, the Global EdTech Expansion Edition. I'm talking to Michael Spencer today, who's the CEO of Global Expansion Strategies. Mm -hmm. Michael, welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate you having us on. Yeah, it's great to have you. We've talked about EdTech in a few different capacities on this show, but I don't know if we've gone deep with someone with your level of expertise, both in EdTech broadly and, uh, and then in particular in EdTech internationally, which is really where mm -hmm. you've planted your flag to a large extent. Yeah. We're going to want to get into that as the, the, the bulk of the conversation. But sure. to begin with, we always like to ask our guests for their origin story. What okay. got you to this point in your professional life and how does that relate <sighs> to trends in learning? So sure. hopefully you'll be able to tell us a bit of a story here to kick it off and then uh, yeah. we'll dive in from there. Sure. Originally born in Somali Republic, East Africa, lived there to the age of five, after which mom and dad, along with sisters, got transferred to several countries throughout the Middle East, Europe, where we ended up spending the better half of my teens in Latin America. Came to the United States in 1982, got my undergraduate from California State University, Fresno, did my MBA at Monterey Institute of International Studies. Wherever I've gone and whatever I've done, I've had that international DNA in, inside me. Mm -hmm. So I started off in Silicon Valley working with a very large uh, computer manufacturer at the time. They were just pushing boxes overseas. And so I honed my experience on commercializing the distribution of hardware technology internationally. Did that for several years, quite successfully, ventured off into helping smaller stage companies take their technologies international. That then in turn turned into a more of an advisory capacity where we help these companies expand internationally, raise capital, and then successfully exit. Shortly after that, we started to found and co-found companies where we did the same thing, mostly hardware, ed tech, expanding globally, raising capital, and exiting them. And then about 18 years ago, I found myself venturing into the software as a service space, specifically mm -hmm. ed tech, helping a lot of, again, ed tech companies that were coming out with really disruptive, unique online education programs. And again, same format, taking them through distribution to the international markets. And since then, we've had quite a few successful capital raises along with exits, and hence the origins of global expansion strategies. We coin ourselves as a international growth and investment advisory firm working with early to mid-stage ed tech companies expand globally. We use what we call a network of strategic channel partners, targeting both private and public institutions globally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's quite a story. It sounds like there's plenty uh, stories to tell within that story as well. If, if I'm hearing a lot of successful launches and mm -hmm. exits and uh, over a really interesting span of time too, if you're talking yep. even into the, the late 20th century and then mm -hmm. through the, the many iterations of technology and educational technology and global marketplaces, that's really what we wanted to spend some time with you on sure. today. Maybe to begin with, broadly over the last 20 years, are there any macro trends that are worth noting that we're picking up on heading into the 2020s? Obviously, we're going to spend some time talking about the pandemic, mm -hmm. but I imagine there were some things in flight and some observations yep. you may have on the state of play, really, first 20 years of, of the 2000s. And then I think... In particular, I'd be curious for, for more of your perspective as we get into it on how things have changed or have not changed mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. light of the crazy year we've been living through. Yeah, so I would say over the past two decades, what we've observed is a lot of these 
international private institutions, as well as public education institutions, have become increasingly reliant on online content as a means of, of helping their students achieve outcomes. Now, it's been predominantly in the supplemental space, right? A lot of these international schools have curriculum that must align to government standards. And so they tended to work with supplemental programs that can help augment um, their existing core curriculum, specifically in areas such as English language arts, math, and the sciences. And, and that's become increasingly pronounced over the past uh, two decades. Over the past year, we've seen a dramatic shift in that. A lot of these international schools were predominantly print-based as a means of their curriculum. I myself have coined that the pandemic has accelerated online education by 10 to 15 years. And, and we're seeing that now over the past years, these large school operators, uh, smallest being 50,000 students that we work with, the largest being 1.8 million students, have now shifted from an 80% print to the balance online to almost now 60% online balance print. Mm. You can see up, up until prior to the pandemic, the, you know, the trend has been gradual, more from a supplemental perspective, but the pandemic has really um, accelerated their adoption now to online curriculum. Yeah. And then how do you see that playing forward? I'd love to to pick your brain in this conversation a bit more about trends that you see accelerating into the future yeah. and in particular opportunities and emerging technologies, emerging trends sure. that uh, maybe sure. are more relevant in the global space that folks who are focused more on domestic US may not be as familiar mm-hmm. with. So I don't know if there's any of those that jump to mind. Yeah, so from a trend perspective, we are clearly seeing schools now leveraging a curriculum that is online to now that is going to be the new norm. It's quite simple. In fact, we've been advising companies that their entire offering should be online and that they should be sprinkling in components of face-to-face instruction. It's almost the flip model, right? Yeah. And interesting to see that a lot of these school operators are actually doing that. What, what we're envisioning is that the new norm isn't so much just the use of online curriculum from a supplemental perspective, but supplemental and core curriculum are going to be all online. Mm. Um, and, and, and interestingly enough, another trend that's, that runs parallel to that is these large school operators are starting to realize the economics of doing so and that they are now able to manage their curriculum, achieve, if not equal or better student outcomes, but they're also able to increase their student base. And that impacts the economics. Obviously, in these kinds of discussions, we always see there's that intersection where academics meet economics. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing a lot of discussions about now the economic side of that formula. Yeah, that to me sounds like it would require new expertises for the startups that are trying to go international, whether it's attacking the content, the core curriculum of these international schools on the one Mm -hmm. hand, but then also being able to co-develop with the the in-country core curriculum, which I imagine is 
Is, is it different depending on the culture? It is. We look when we take these technologies to the international markets, we make sure that they can be deployed in any number of blended learning models. That's very key. And so when we do that, we discover that there's really four people that you have to convince at these school operators um, about the technology. And that's usually the executive management, which looks at the technology and, and they look at it from the perspective of is this going to enhance in any capacity the student outcomes of our student? What are the economics of using the technology and how does this differentiate us from our competitive school down the street? Second person is the facilitator. This is a person at the school that often oversees the use of the program, its implementation, its deployment, its training and ongoing use. Mm -hmm. And then the remaining two people are the parents that pay for it and the students that take it. But anywhere throughout those discussions, we're finding ourselves having to entertain conversations that not only reflect in, in deploying the technology in a blended learning model, but also adapting it to the existing curriculum. Yes. And it's not very difficult to do, and it doesn't really take a lot of resources to do that. It really requires just an understanding of how these technologies can be, for better lack of words, bolted onto the existing curriculum. Right? And then I guess it requires also more EQ cultural mm -hmm. sensitivity, mm -hmm. uh, awareness of difference and respect for the local expertise that is there where mm -hmm. prior to the pandemic, when it was more supplemental education, I would imagine there could be more ownership of your curriculum and then a, an assumption that it would be useful across the board. Yep. Now, when you're taking on the, the educational outcomes that are specific to that, that culture, that country, that mm -hmm. school, I'd imagine the partnership has to be a little bit closer. Yes, uh, great point. And that comes back to the discussion where we use strategic channel partners. We have a network of sales managers, sales directors, or strategic channel partners in, in country. These are the boots on the ground that manage our portfolio of, of solutions and how they're utilized in the country, specifically within these private institutions. Mm -hmm. And in, and in doing so, it's amazing the response that we get from these schools as to perhaps adding enhancements, modifications to do these platforms to further accommodate outcomes, grade levels, yeah. um, or, or perhaps other schools that um, are outside the existing private school network. And your classic example of that is that when we take technologies to these international countries, we usually target private institutions. But we soon find ourselves entertaining conversations with uh, public institutions that are, you know, funded by the Ministry of Education. There's some price sensitivity issues, but we find ourselves entertaining those conversations as well. So to answer your question, yes, very close partnerships with all parties and stakeholders involved. Yeah. One of the topics that we talk about a lot on the show is also the skills that are evolving, the skills mm -hmm. gaps and the skills mm -hmm. needs that yeah. are changing, where it sounds like you manage a range of curricula in different mm -hmm. domains, but how have you seen that develop in terms of international demand? Are there new skill skills and competencies, new ways of understanding whether education outcomes are working or not? Are there a set of trends around that in the global space that you're noticing? Yeah, interesting. We're starting to see a lot of trends specific to skills and career and technical education. What we're seeing is you know, a lot of students that graduate from these private high schools opt to take one, perhaps two years off before they enter the university, obviously going out there trying to capture some sort of work experience. And being that the trend, we've recently started working with an organization that, that provides career and technical education courses 
in specific categories that not only will the student be able to take a certain course, data mining, consulting, private equity, and related type courses, but we've paralleled that with uh, a mentorship, a body of mentors that are experts in that course, but also local internships. So mm-hmm. now what you have is you've got high school students that are questioning whether they want to jump into college. They want to take one or two years off. They can take a course, get a certificate in a certain trait, and actually go off and be mentored by mentors in that respective field, as well as an internship. So Mm -hmm. it helps the students better prepare themselves for what they want to do in college. And at the same token, be gainfully employed. Yeah. One of the things that we're looking at, particularly in the U.S., is the the tension between what higher ed can do Mm -hmm. versus what the private sector workforce vocational training can do. Mm -hmm. And things frequently land in the middle there, where best case, there's some alignment and connection there. I would imagine new ventures probably are emerging to start to connect the dots there. Uh, Can you expand on that a little bit? Like I said, one of the, one of the companies that, that we're actually working with has a program specifically to bridge um, that gap so that students don't find themselves at a pretty disadvantaged point should they decide to go to the university and spend the resources and time and finances and graduate and find themselves with a degree that really doesn't help them to be gainfully employed. So again, we're seeing that gap become increasingly, I guess you could say, populated by companies that are looking to get into that space. And and are there any trends along those lines where you think these areas are heating up and they'll stay hot? If folks are trying to understand the, the broader perspective around global ed tech, Are there certain types of companies, certain content domains, structures, models, whatever? I I can speak specifically to where we're having a lot of success with these high school students. And and that is we're seeing a pretty big demand and need for current certificate-based programs. These are in areas such as web development, product management, data science, blockchain, private equity, visual design, management, consulting. That's where we're seeing a a lot of success in, in the need for those courses. Paralleled that with a body of mentors and again, an internship. Yeah. Right? And then so, just to pick up there too, it sounded like you were saying that's that's really secondary school is where a lot of the focus is. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's actually prior because a lot of what we see in the US is that some of these partnerships are picking up in college and higher education post-secondary, but a lot of what you're describing sounds like it's prior to that. Much, yes, before that. Upon exiting high school, and entering college, right? Because what you do then is you're providing these students with a little bit more guidance as to perhaps areas that they may want to go to college to get an enhanced education in those subject areas and really Mm -hmm. become gainfully employed upon graduating. Yeah. And do you see any opportunity? I know your focus is mainly global, but I always think we can learn by understanding perspectives that are outside of our own generally. And if Mm -hmm. you're seeing these trends globally, do you think we'll see similar trends in the U.S.? And do you have any Mm -hmm. understanding of the the, the parallels or why it's different? Yeah, we're starting to see those trends here in the United States. Are they taking place at the high school level? Um, not sure yet. You were starting to see a lot of programs that are after-school programs. Now, these are programs where individuals want to come back and perhaps be retrained or upskilled in, in some sort of capacity. But the age difference there is different. Mm-hmm. We're talking about students graduating from high school, whereas here in the United States, now they're a little bit older there than yeah. high school students. So it's almost like the equivalent of a gap year or mm-hmm. two 
that frequently international students will get their high school diploma at 16 or much younger age. We have students that are graduating earlier. They're graduating not only with their local diploma, Mm-hmm. but they're also graduating with a U.S. high school diploma. These are international high schools that are offering dual diplomas, meaning mm-hmm. they're local and perhaps and the U.S. high school diploma. We're even seeing students graduate with their local diploma, a U.S. high school diploma, and now an IB. Mm-hmm. So look at the trend here. The trend is obviously apparent that is questioning what is the intended post-secondary direction of my student. Mm-hmm. They want to mitigate the risks that they get to the finish line high school graduation, and they only have one diploma. Now these students have three diplomas, right? Mm-hmm. So they have options. Yeah. It's all about options. Yeah. And it's, it sounds like on top of that, maybe they're starting to get, I guess the IB is in this vein, but they're getting certificates and other uh, ways to federate the fact that they'll be able to perform these job-based skills or Absolutely. these emerging. That makes a lot of sense. Since global is a big thing, mm-hmm. Michael, I'd also love to hear any regional components of global ed tech that are interesting for folks who may be more domestically minded? Are there any broader trends around Asia Pacific versus Africa, Europe, Latin America, Australia? It's a big world out there. Are the trends pretty consistent across or are there some ways to characterize uh, how it's different? It's interesting. I would say pre-pandemic, the trends were a little different. But the pandemic has put such a drain on these international institutions that they are now focusing on what is going to be the new norm of administering education, and that's all online. And mm-hmm. so you, it's only been until the last six to eight months that we've seen these education institutions put tremendous resources into shifting or pivoting to all online curriculum. Mm-hmm. as a means to deploy their curriculum and leaving very little left over for print media. So from a uniformity perspective, we're seeing everyone trying to shift. Um, yeah. to, now, w- what we're seeing happen as a result of that is that these education institutions are becoming very aware as to what they have and what they don't have in this shift, right? Up until then, they all published their own curriculum. They spent years developing it, mon- lots of resources. But because the shift has been so fast, they're starting to realize that they have a lot of gaps, I guess you, I guess you could say, right? Mm-hmm. Options to those gaps, sure. Take on the initiative to deploy and develop and fill that gap, but that takes months putting them at a significant disadvantage. So they're mm-hmm. out very are interested in looking at acquiring and using content that's already out on the market. Hence, yeah. that's where we help a lot of them source the, these contents and help them establish the relationship that they need to fill those gaps. Yeah, and that's content. And it's almost, it almost sounds like content as a service to a certain extent. What about the software component? Are there trends around the types of technologies globally that folks are interested in? What we're seeing is uh, a big demand for English language learning. A lot of times these international companies have prided themselves and established a tremendous footprint in the international community that their solution will help students learn how to read, write, speak, and listen English. They've used these platforms in various modalities and franchises. They've even used them in schools. And what's happening now is these private schools or these large school operators are realizing that 
this one platform can't fix all or address all and drive towards the optimum outcomes in all four categories, read, mm -hmm. write, speak, and listen. And so what you're seeing now is a lot of companies coming out in the market that have technologies that specifically address each one of those four. And as a result of that, when we're asked by these you know, international institutions, what recommendations we are able now to provide them with solutions that can accommodate each four. And not all four come from the same company. Yeah. In the U.S., a lot of the perception of this rapid move to online mm -hmm. was that it was pretty terrible and that people did not navigate it successfully. And mm -hmm. there is almost a, a tendency to just, let's just get past this experiment, which was largely a failure. And let's just get back to in-person learning mm -hmm. is a broader perception that's out there in the U.S., uh, both for K-12 and for higher ed. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of fatigue. Zoom fatigue is the thing that we oh, talk yeah. about a lot. Yeah. Uh, I think we, we certainly feel it. But I'm wondering if there is a similar perception overseas or not, because I also have heard that the perception of higher education is taking more of a beating in the U.S., but it tends to be perceived more positively still overseas. So I, I would- I would love to get some of those co compare and contrast, some ways in which maybe the global perception of online education and the global perception of getting an online undergraduate degree or pursuing a certificate through online, all these different things. Are there any ways in which you could tease out some differences in terms of those perceptions with the global market? Yeah. On the international market, many of these, most of these international school operators had a, a fairly established use of online education already, almost to the degree where a lot of their curriculum was already available online. So the shift hasn't been that challenging for them, right? Mm -hmm. It's more of an infrastructure thing that they've been having to deal with. What we've seen with a lot of these international institutions is that the migration to online has been a lot easier, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. What about the, the, the role of the faculty or the subject matter mm -hmm. experts or the curriculum development? Because mm -hmm. my perception, again, mainly in the U.S., has been that some folks are, have been ready to make the shift and yeah. then others have had uh, some genuine challenges with that. Right. Have you seen that in the international space as well? Ooh, look, we have. There's obviously, it, I would tend to think it's a lot of it is age related, but Again, one of the things that we, we do, and it goes back to those four stakeholders that we work with, we spend a considerable amount of time training the staff, right? Training the staff on not only how it should be implemented upon for starting off the program, but used over, over time. Yes, there are challenges, but if you provide the appropriate um, amount of training and professional development upon implementation, it really mitigates any kind of risk down the road. Yeah. And is that a space that's also emerging? Because I do see yeah. that opportunity where it's more professional services mm -hmm. around the move to online, certainly in the US where a lot of folks feel lost and still a C when they think about how to develop a good online program. Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways, I think also in the US, it's more likely going to be a blend moving forward where yeah. we've opened up access by going online. We're probably not going to turn that off 100%, but I there's going to be this, this strong drive to get back to in person, regardless, there will be an online component and mm -hmm. figuring out how to get good at that and yeah. how to train and develop that. Are, are you seeing activity around that and opportunity there? Um, yeah, look, we, in, in some of these countries where we've had some significantly large deployments, we've used local companies to help us train. One of the one of the unique advantages of, of going to these large school operators is that there's considerable buy-in. but. One of the challenges we have is that these students are spread out throughout an entire country. So if you look at the, the mechanics of having to work with a school of, say, 
1.5 or 1.8 million students spread out over several campuses, it gets challenging. And so that's why we've worked with in-country organizations that provide that kind of professional development and training. And it works. It does impact the cost of acquisition in the earlier stages. But again, if done properly in the first year, that tapers off subsequent years. Yeah. Makes sense. From an ed tech perspective, there's tremendous potential overseas. It has proven to be very beneficial for several of the companies that we've worked with, both um, you know present and past. And I would encourage ed tech companies to not only look at the domestic market as their primary source of, of revenue, but also look to the international markets. Unlike in years past where there was the philosophy that you had to go and set up a huge infrastructure in country with all sorts of salaries and taxes that impact that. And then as obviously, having to localize the curriculum, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. That's not the case. A lot of companies that have curriculum nowadays can be used in their existing English format Mm -hmm. and implemented through strategic channel partners in these countries. So I would encourage uh, companies to look to the international markets as perhaps incremental sources of revenue. Yeah. And and along those lines, is there a right time to start thinking international if, if you're starting as a domestic venture yeah, and yeah. Is, what have you seen work what are there any times when it doesn't make sense yeah, great question you know, look we usually try to work with companies as well as invest in companies that are two to three years post revenue they've got themselves perhaps two and a half to three million good organic revenue the product roadmap has been vetted to some degree meaning that organic revenue is generated by true organic revenue and that there's a healthy bottom line. I I would say those are probably some key data points that we look at uh, as we evaluate companies um, to take initiative. And even under those circumstances, we're very cautious about how fast we grow these companies aggressively, just because we know that we all want those big school operators to work with us and have all sorts of nice enrollments, but there is a threshold and we try to work with companies in a staged manner of growth. Otherwise, there are challenges that are associated with too rapid of growth, right? And what that usually leads to is us really focusing on the geographies where we believe the technology would be best used first and then scaling it up from there. So instead of taking technologies to all the major geographies, Latin America, Europe, Middle East, we tend to focus on certain geographies first, depending on Again, the product, its application, its use within the education institution and its intended student population. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And then what about the other aspect of this, which would be international ed tech startups? Mm -hmm. Yep. What's that state of play like? And is there activity? Are there, I've seen a lot from uh, Scandinavia as an example, uh, but are there certain hotspots that you've seen or certain uh, competencies that you're seeing emerging in the, the global uh, it's, playing field? It's a great question. I would say that the pandemic has put the international ed tech community more in touch with each other. So you have a lot of these U.S. incubators and accelerators where I would almost question that 50% plus of the companies that come into them are from in the international markets. So you're seeing quite a bit of companies internationally come to the U.S., enter these accelerators and try to go after the global market. Yeah, a lot of them, I'd say there's a lot of companies coming out of the Middle East, Africa, really a lot of unique technologies coming out of Africa, Latin America, and Asia as well. And are those solutions designed for problems that are unique to those domains? Or is it more that Mm -hmm. what's working in LATAM 
could be applied to to Africa or, or the U.S. or Europe? Yeah, great question. They mostly align themselves with the core curriculum, and we mm-hmm. all know that the core curriculum in the general school K twelve population is is core curriculum, right? So a a, a fifth grade math program in Asia is not going to be that too far off from a fifth grade math program in any other countries. A lot of these solutions are, most of them are supplemental add-on solutions, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're programs that augment or enhance existing core curriculum. So with that nature, they can be used anywhere in the world. Yeah. So you're sitting at a vantage point where you can see ways to connect and comprise a program because of the breadth of what you can see, whereas mm-hmm. folks who are in country or are maybe trying to get into another country won't be able to necessarily connect those dots. Yeah. Yeah. That makes exactly. sense. So this is really, this has been enlightening to me so far. We're going to conclude by asking you for any other trends that are out there in the world around us that are capturing your imagination. But before we do that, I think you did a nice job earlier, just in terms of providing some high-level perspective and and insight into how to think about international expansion, global expansion, and the opportunities that are presenting themselves. You sound somewhat, maybe it's part of your job, but you sound positive about the prospects. I'd love to get maybe some closing thoughts from you on what the broader disposition might be and any advice you might have for folks who are trying to understand global ed tech. And then from there, we can conclude with uh, with any additional thoughts you might have. Yeah, I, look, I would say I, I always advise ed tech companies, be open to the international markets, be prepared for somewhat of a lengthy sales cycle. We, we all know the challenges associated with the sales cycles here in the United States. That, that you can find yourself embarking on a sales cycle where upon re, you know, arriving to the end of that sales cycle, variety of decisions that may impact the decision to not move forward, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the international market space, when we work with these organizations, that doesn't happen. You do have to be prepared for a lengthy sales cycle, but you do know at the end of that sales cycle, there's a ultimate win-win situation, both for the ed tech company as well as the, the school itself. I always advise ed tech companies to really be aware of that intersection where academics meet economics, right? Mm-hmm. Because you can find yourself easily in a, what, what I call product development creep, where you're constantly enhancing the technology. You've got the best technology in the world to accommodate a certain student outcome, but nobody knows about you. And before you know it, somebody has come into the market with something similar, deeper pockets, perhaps funded or not. And your potential is not all that what it was originally, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I would encourage these ed tech companies to make sure you focus on do what you do best now, capture the scale, consider the domestic and international markets, because a lot of times with, with some of the organizations that we've been able to work with, we've been able to stave off the aggregate of their seed rounds, and sometimes their A round with the international market opportunities. So wow. the benefits of that are obviously everything associated with raising the necessary capital, dilution mm-hmm. to your, your cap table. So again, back to be aware of that intersection. It's yeah. really going to be important to you down the road, especially now, because yeah. there's a lot of money. You see it, I see it, we read it all the time from the EdTech investment community. I think it's this quarter alone was a record year for investment in, in, in tech companies. And just be cognizant of that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and then the also the return on that capital may be better if you're yeah. looking at the, the, the full breadth of the global markets that are yeah. available to you rather than uh, focusing exclusively on 
the, the, the U.S. domestic market as an example. Absolutely. Really fascinating stuff. I've got my wheels turning. I Hopefully our listeners are, are, are right there with us. The other thing we always love to ask, you're a guy who's had, had his head up while he's playing. As Wayne Gretzky famously said, you skate to where the puck is going. Yep. We've been talking about Ed Tech, but we haven't taken a step back and said, well, Michael, we have you for a little time here. What else is happening in the world around us that uh, you think it might be a game changer heading into the 2020s? Anything out there capturing your imagination these days? I like what I hear about artificial intelligence. I like how I'm seeing it being applied in a variety of different capacities and uses across the the K-12 curriculum development spectrum. I think Mm -hmm. that is going to be very important as a means for these programs to really provide the support and use within these applications to drive student outcome. Seeing great technology out there, great uses of it. And I'm encouraged. Yeah. And just a quick follow-up on that. Are you seeing any potential for disruption of the, you talked before about how the curriculum is pretty uniform uh, across K-12 education, across the globe mm-hmm. with new technology. You mentioned the blockchain, artificial intelligence, augmented yeah. reality, like a lot of these technologies that were a little more hypothetical are becoming more real now. Are you seeing potential disruption in terms of the the core curriculum uh, and the way that it's taught for folks who are trying to get out ahead of the disruption to the future of work uh, that's on the horizon? What, I, what I'm seeing from a disruptive perspective is that up until now, it's been mo- mostly used as a nice to have, but we're seeing a lot of companies now that are coming out with applications that are actually being used in both middle and high school. So mm-hmm. what I'm seeing is a lot of these technologies are being used in earlier grade levels, which is quite unique. A lot, what we're also seeing a, quite a bit of a trend in is pre-K to uh, third and fourth grade. Hmm. A lot of technologies um, coming out there that weren't available in the past. Wow. As a parent of a, of a two-year-old, <laughs> I may need to follow up on how to get him started on his disruptive skills training. <laughs> on his early. programming skills? Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So wonderful conversation. Michael Spencer, the CEO of Global Expansion Strategies. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show. My pleasure, Michael. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, and for our listeners, hopefully you're finding this interesting. Your wheels are turning as much as ours. And we'll be back again soon. Thanks for listening. This is Trending in Education.